0: For all of us as a people, is, is your God big enough? Is God, are you living your life as if he is on the throne of your life? Or are you just pulling him in just when it's convenient or to be helpful? So, is God big enough? Well, the Bible has got some scriptures that speak straight into that. Isaiah says, surely the nations are like a drop in a bucket. They're regarded as dust on the scales. He weighs the islands as though they were fine dust. Psalm 2 Some excerpts from Psalm 2 says, Why do the nations conspire, and the peoples plot in vain? The kings of the earth take their stand, and the rulers gather together against the Lord. Let us break their chains, they say, and throw off their fetters. The one enthroned in heaven laughs. The Lord scoffs at them. Therefore, you kings, be wise. Be warned, you rulers of the earth. Now, when it says the Lord scoffs at them, I don't actually think God kind of, um, you know, God is perfect, God is good. He's... He's actually just got an accurate assessment of how big he is and how tiny they are. Maybe a bit like as a parent, you've got a, a little toddler that has a strop sometimes about something, and they see the world like this, and you as a parent stand back and smile at them, thinking, man, you've got that so out of perspective. You love them, but you kind of laugh at them. So that's sort of, I feel, is God's heart towards us. Actually, God is so big, we're so little, and we get things out of perspective. Now, there are... <coughs> before we think about the sovereignty of God, actually, we need to hold the sovereignty of God in tension with lots of the other attributes of God. And so I felt it's worth just unpacking a few parts of God's character really, really quickly because that helps us to understand a little bit about God's sovereignty. So I've got a picture a little bit like the facets of a diamond. I feel God is so, so multifaceted. He's so amazing. It's what makes us bow down and worship. One of the facets of God is his independence, In Acts, it says that he's not served by human hands as if he needed anything. God doesn't need us. God didn't make us because he was lonely or he was somehow incomplete. God exists above um, above time. He was there before time started. Within the Trinity, there's relationship between Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. There's freedom there's freedom in, as part of God's character. God does what he pleases. Nothing in all creation can hinder God from accomplishing his will. Psalm 115.3 says, Our God is in heaven. He does whatever pleases him. have got a quote from Wayne Grudem, who's, who's just a really inspiring theologian, and he says this, Because God is free, we should not try to seek any more ultimate answer for God's actions in creation than the fact that he willed to do so. Uh, he willed to do something and that his will has perfect freedom. Sometimes people try to discover the reason why God had to do one or another action, such as create the world or save us. It's better simply to say that it was God's totally free will. That, that was the final reason why he chose to create the world and to save sinners. Another facet of God's character is his omnipotence. The word comes from omni, meaning all, and potens means, means powerful. God is all-powerful. He is able to do anything. I want to just quote three people in the Bible who testify to this. Paul says that God is able to do far more than we can even imagine. Gabriel, the angel, when he speaks to Mary, he says, with God, nothing is impossible. And Jesus himself, in Matthew, says, with God, all things are possible. So this brings us on to God's sovereignty. Because although God can do all things, because of some of the aspects of God's character, he actually chooses to limit what he can do. There are some things that actually God can't do. So, for example, God can't do anything that would deny his own character. Okay? The Bible says God can't lie. God doesn't lie because God is truth. So there are some aspects of God. God can't cease to exist because he's God. God can't be tempted. So he can't act in any way which is inconsistent with any of his attributes. Now, the sovereignty of God is a little bit like the Lord is is a a sovereign ruler or a king, and God rules over this earth like a, a cosmic king, a cosmic creator. So my challenge to us this morning is, has God become too small in your eyes? Is he God Almighty rather than God Almighty? Let's have a little bit of John Piper just to, just to move us on. It says this, this, John Piper says this, Against the overwhelming seriousness and weight of the Bible, much of the church is choosing at this very moment to become more light and shallow and en- entertainment-orientated and therefore successful in its irrelevance to massive suffering and evil. The popular God of fun church is simply too small and too affable to hold a hurricane in his hand The biblical categories of God's sovereignty lie like landmines in the pages of the Bible, waiting for someone to seriously open the book. They don't kill, but they do explode trivial notions of the Almighty. So, hopefully, this morning we are going to see how God, in His sovereignty, is um, His character is demonstrated through this passage in Isaiah. So, let's go on to the background of the passage. just out of interest, I don't know how many of these, these series you've, um, you've sat through, but um, I love the, the PowerPoints that John Athill knocks up for us, but I, I sometimes wonder that this little um, little sun in the corner just um, just reminds me, oh hold on, oh okay, I've not got that slide, maybe the Lord took that bad joke out, fantastic, okay, so let's look at the background of the passage, shall we? I did did a bit of a a study across our youth leaders, and um, loads of them are godly young men and women who love the Bible and love Jesus. And I sort of said to them, over this Isaiah series, how confident do you feel in terms of the history of Israel, the kind of the cultural context into which Isaiah was preaching? Because I don't know about you, but I feel there's a, a bit of an elephant in the room for me that often when we approach Isaiah, actually we can be unsure of well where does this prophecy speak into? Because Isaiah tends to group his prophecies by theme rather than chronologically. I really want to plug a book by Phil Moore. I'm going to make this my, my kind of aim every time I come up and preach, but straight to the heart of Isaiah, Phil Moore very clearly places Isaiah into culture. You know, so He talks through the cultural and historical background into which Isaiah preached. And his main theme is, as it says on the front, God is bigger than you think. So I really want to encourage you, if your, your times with God are getting a bit stale, grab, grab a copy of that book and dig into Isaiah with Phil Moore. So just a very, very quick overview. We know there were the 12 tribes of Israel that, that God led out of Egypt. And um, at about 930 BC, when Solomon dies, his son Rehoboam takes over, and there's a split in Israel, and in 1 Kings it details the split, that some tribes go one way and some tribes go another way. Ten tribes went north, breaking away, subsequently referred to as Israel with their capital Samaria. The other tribes, Judah, Benjamin, and the Levites, formed a southern kingdom known as Judah with their capital Jerusalem, which was ruled by the descendants of David. Hopefully John goes will chip in if I go wrong here. However, Isaiah, when he picks things up, he th- picks things up at about 740 BC. Judah's not in a fab place. King Uzziah has just died um, after a long reign. And although it's been a time of relative peace in Judah, God's people have neglected him, he says. They oppress the poor. They lack justice. They have false religious festivals in place. In fact, Isaiah says they're worse than Sodom. It's a city that God totally destroyed. The people of Judah were fairly complacent. They thought that having Solomon's temple um, in their midst meant that they were a branch of heaven on earth. So Isaiah actually is prompted by God to foretell their exile and also their ultimate deliverance. Now, if you look at the, look at the chart here, we've got these kind of the fa- places where Israel and Judah both fall and the people go into exile. And around them at the time, there are other empires that are pressing in on God's people. Tiglath-Pileser becomes the self-appointed king of Assyria um, and he kind of murders the royal family and takes control of the empire and he begins militarizing his empire and he conquers Babylon. During his reign, he enters Israel, takes captive many of the tribes of Israel and takes them off. Meanwhile, in the kingdom of Judah, a similar thing happens a bit later on. Nebuchadnezzar in 597 BC, he then conquers and again takes captives off including Daniel and Ezekiel. So that's sort of the the period we're looking at. Isaiah is speaking before some of those events. And actually, we'll look at it in God's sovereignty. God, in his grace, speaks into this situation. So let's have a look at the passage. If you want to grab your Bibles, we're going to read Isaiah 45, 1 to 7. This is what the Lord says to his anointed, to Cyrus, whose right hand I take hold of, to subdue nations before him, And to strip kings of their armour, to open doors before him so that gates will not be shut. I will go before you and will level the mountains. I will break down gates of bronze and cut through bars of iron. I will give you hidden treasures, riches stored in secret places, so that you may know that I am the Lord, the God of Israel, who summons you by name. For the sake of Jacob, my servant... Of Israel, my chosen, I summon you by name and bestow on you a title of honor, though you do not acknowledge me. I am the Lord, and there is no other. Apart from me, there is no God. I will strengthen you, though you've not acknowledged me, so that from the rising of the sun to the place of its setting, people may know that there is none besides me. I am the Lord, and there is no other. I form the light. And create darkness. I bring prosperity and create disaster. I, the Lord, do all these things. Now, if I'm honest, when I first read the passage that Steve had kind of given to me as part of the preaching series, I did think Steve had given me a bit of a dud. Um, I believe totally that all scripture is God breathed, but actually, on my first few readings, I must say, I kind of sat there going, What am I going to get out of this passage? I mean, the first thing was, who, Who was Cyrus? I hadn't really got a, I'm, I'm not very well up on my biblical history and I was kind of thinking Cyrus, Cyrus who's Cyrus and I, I don't know about you and where your mind goes but this is certainly where my mind goes I came in like a I never hit no, so well. hard It doesn't really go there actually I'm I'm closer to re here this is where my mind goes Don't tell my heart my achy, heart I just do think you understand And if you tell my heart make him break he might blow up in Sorry about that. Anyway, a brief interlude. That will really annoy John Athill, because we'll have to take that out of, the, out of the preach now before it goes on the website to contravene copyright regulations. So sorry about that, John. Anyway, that's where my mind went first. so actually I really had to dig into um, some biblical history and really have a look at who was Cyrus. So who was he? Well, here is a, um, a relief um, take, taken from, um, from around Babylon. Um, Cyrus, in the ancient days, they didn't have Wikipedia. To look him up. So actually in the ancient days, if you wanted to look up who Cyrus was, actually you would go to um, Xenophon's account of Cyrus' history. It's called Cyrus, the Education of Cyrus, and actually it's called Cyropedia, which I, I find quite fantastic, which is good. But, um, so Xenophon wrote a book all about his history of Cyrus, and um, Cyrus was the son of a cattle herder from Anshan, which was a very small kingdom which was gobbled up by the Medes according to Herodotus. Um, Cyrus ruled from about 560 to 530. 30 BC. Um, However, Xenophon's account of Cyrus differs from Isaiah's account of Cyrus, and and I just want to look at that very briefly. Um, Firstly, it's the dating. Xenophon writes about Cyrus about 100 years after Cyrus's death. Isaiah writes about him over a century before he was born, which is amazing. This is the next in a stream of accurate prophecies that Isaiah um, prophesies and comes to pass. He prophesies about Israel. He prophesies about Judah, Assyria, Babylon, and Jesus. And now he's talking about Cyrus. The second area in which Xenophon differs from Isaiah's account is that um, Xenophon emphasizes Cyrus' strength and wisdom as a military leader. In fact, he says that he led military campaigns which brought into subjection every nation without exception. Okay, so he was an amazing leader. Or as we're going to see it, God raised him up to be a great leader. However, Isaiah seeks to emphasize his weakness and his folly. Okay, God is going to use Cyrus, says Isaiah, despite his weakness. Now there's much in this passage that we've just read that actually God's people, when they heard it, probably wouldn't have disagreed with. The first bit, God anoints his leaders. God anoints his leaders, and actually, for us in the book of Romans, actually, we have the we have the verse in Romans that says everyone must submit himself to the governing authorities, for there's no authority except that which God has established. The authorities that exist have been established by God. So, God's people probably wouldn't have disagreed with that. Who has stirred up one from the east, calling him to righteousness? To his service, So God has stirred up Cyrus and brought him to this place. The people of Israel wouldn't have disagreed that actually the conquering power of one of God's leaders is by divine gift. That God gifts his leaders to lead. That God's people are at the centre of his concern. For the sake of Jacob, my servant, of Israel, my chosen. God is concerned for his people. And also they would agree that God has a worldwide plan for his people. From the rising of the sun to the place of its setting, people may know there's none beside me. However, to call Cyrus his anointed, now that's a challenge to God's people. The word anointed is the same word as the word for Messiah. So actually Isaiah is saying that God is going to anoint Cyrus like a Messiah to lead his people. Now, that was normally a title reserved for the, um, Saul, Israel's first kings, and then the line of David who followed him. It must have seemed to many, maybe God's washed his hands of his people, and maybe he's anointing someone else from outside. God says this, I will raise up Cyrus in my righteousness. I will make all his ways straight. He will rebuild my city and set my exiles free. As we'll see, Cyrus was only a temporary messiah, but God used him for a very specific task at a time when the house of David was in total disarray. Isaiah says that Cyrus was a pagan idolater. What's that got to do with God's people? The people of Israel and Judah must have thought. (laughs) You know, there are so many great pictures I could find. But we have, for us ourselves, we've got to live within that tension of going the people that are in power... There's something in that dynamic that God has instituted people in positions of leadership across the world. Now, the dear, dear Donald is probably a challenge to us as well. Has, God, has this guy been raised up totally without... Is it, is it a surprise to God? It's not. Nothing takes God by surprise. But there's certainly a challenge to us, isn't it, in terms of how do we view the people in power over us? Does God have anything to do with this world, or has he stepped back and just left us to our own devices? Cyrus is spoken of as the Lord Shepherd, his anointed, yet he was an idolater. The idea of God's servant runs through Isaiah. Sometimes it's the people of Israel, sometimes it's Isaiah himself. And as we'll see in a minute, Jesus as well is foretold as being God's servant. I've just got to take him off the screen, sorry. There we go. Right. What did Cyrus do is the next bit. So the rise of Cyrus, we believe, is no accident. That God has anointed Cyrus, Isaiah has prophesied it over a hundred years before. God's people were foretold that Cyrus would be used by God to rescue his people. What the nations saw happen in due course was God putting his powerful sovereign word into effect. God says this of Cyrus. Cyrus is my shepherd and will accomplish all that I please. He will say of Jerusalem, let it be rebuilt, and of the temple, Let its foundation be laid. This pagan king, God says, will fulfill his purposes so exactly that it will be the final proof that the Lord is indeed who he claims to be. And of course, from the historical perspective from which we now stand, the fact that Cyrus did do these things just um, has become a matter of historical record. So let's go back to the story of Cyrus and find out what happened. Well, this kind of little area that I've highlighted is roughly the period that we're, we're looking at now. In 539 BC, Cyrus grew in, was growing in power and he turned his eyes toward the city of Babylon. Hold on, Babylon? God's people are in Babylon at the moment, in exile, um, captured and away in the city of Babylon. Now, Cyrus breaches the walls of Babylon. Now, Herodotus, who's this dude here, He said that the walls were 25 metres thick and 100 metres high. Now, I I don't know whether that's hyperbole or or not, but Babylon was certainly a well-fortified and strong city. In fact, um, Belshazzar, the then king of Babylon, was actually so confident of his fortifications that he decided to throw a party on the night that Babylon fell because he was so confident in in, in the city. However, in 539 BC, Babylon was defeated by Cyrus. God enabled Cyrus to be victorious. In 538 BC, the year later, fulfilling Isaiah's prophecy, Cyrus issues a proclamation granting the Jews permission to leave air exile and return home. And this is what he says in Ezra. This is what Cyrus, king of Persia, says, The Lord, the God of heaven, has given me all the kingdoms of the earth, and he has appointed me to build a temple for him at Jerusalem in Judah. Any one of his people among you, may his God be with him. And let him go up to Jerusalem and Judah and build the temple of the Lord, the God of Israel, the God who is in Jerusalem. Sounds good, doesn't it? Wow, brilliant. However, Cyrus also hedged his bets by paying lip service to any other god who was in the vicinity as well. So actually, he wasn't a godly ruler. We've got a copy of one of his royal edicts, which is on this interesting cylinder. It's called the Cyrus Cylinder, and it's in the British Museum. And it was found in, in the, kind of the rubble in Babylon. And um, actually, it says this on the Cyrus cylinder. Cyrus wrote this May all the gods that I have returned to their sanctuaries ask Marduk, who's also known as Bel, and Nabo daily that I may have a long life. So actually, Cyrus kind of acknowledged all the gods for his success. Okay? So he didn't actually become um, a follower of Yahweh. So the Jews were free, they could go home. Cyrus was spiritually confused. Um, but the Lord put the evidence before him to make such knowledge possible. Now, Ezra, in Ezra's account, says that actually fewer than 50,000 Jews actually left Babylon to go back. They preferred to stay in Babylon, still waiting for a person that they thought was God's anointed to deliver them. Those who chose Babylon over Jerusalem would pay a heavy price later on, because in 520, King Darius, the great Persian king, captured Babylon, and he shows none of the mercy of Cyrus, and actually makes it an awful time for God's people in the city. Alec Mottier, who's um, wrote lots of commentaries, he's written a great one on Isaiah, he says this, "'As we shall learn, Israel remained blind, and the watching world remained uninformed. Cyrus was at the centre of the Lord's purpose, but failed to fulfil that purpose.' Mercifully, the Lord had another and more glorious person and plan waiting in the shadows. Now, what I love about God's word is, in a way, that the more you dig into God's word, the more riches there are. Um, and, and so I, I was thinking about Cyrus, and I was thinking, actually, he foreshadows Jesus in lots of ways. And in lots of ways how Cyrus acts, how Cyrus rolls can be compared and contrasted with another servant, another leader of God's people, another faithful shepherd of God's people. Let's have a little look. I just want to do a quick compare and contrast with Cyrus and Jesus. Cyrus was prophesied 150 years beforehand, as we've seen. Jesus Obviously was prophesied right through the Old Testament you know around five seven hundred years beforehand we 've got some some prophecies here let 's see if i 've got oh yeah here we go um, oh okay so in in Micah obviously we 've got some of those prophecies we've, in Jeremiah if you think about our Christmas story talking about That the saviour of the world would be born in Bethlehem, would be born to a virgin. There are prophecies 700 years before Christ came that Christ so perfectly fulfilled that it's mind-blowing. Cyrus was was a human servant. He was anointed by the sovereign Lord. He didn't lead wisely. He didn't lead in a godly way. But God, in his sovereignty, used him. Isaiah 46 says, I say, my purpose will stand and I will do all that I please. From the east, I summon a bird of prey, that's meaning Cyrus, from a land far off, a man to fulfill my purpose. What I have said that I will bring about. What I have planned, that I will do. Jesus, well, he was the wise, humble, suffering servant. He was anointed by his father. Isaiah says, see, my servant... Will act wisely. He will be raised and lifted up and highly exalted. So he will sprinkle many nations and kings. Sorry, he will sprinkle many nations and kings will shut their mouths because of him. He says, My righteous servant will justify many and he will bear their iniquities. Christ Jesus made himself nothing, taking the very nature of a servant, he humbled himself. For even the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and give his life as a ransom for many. Jesus couldn't be more different from Cyrus in many ways. Cyrus did not acknowledge God. Back in our passage that we've been looking at, it says this, For the sake of Jacob, my servant, of Israel, my chosen, I summon you, Cyrus, by name, and bestow on you a title of honour, though you do not acknowledge me. I will strengthen you, though you have not Acknowledged me. God sovereignly used Cyrus to achieve his purposes. However, Jesus did the will of the Father. In John 6, it says, Jesus says this, for I have come down from heaven, not to do my will, but to do the will of him who sent me. And this is the will of him who sent me, that I shall lose none of those that he has given me, but raise them up at the last day. For my Father's will is that everyone who looks to the Son and believes in Him shall have eternal life, and I will raise Him up on the last day. Hallelujah. Jesus consciously did the will of the Father. Ultimately, Cyrus was not recognized by Israel as a leader or as a Messiah, and ultimately, the nations were not affected. Jesus was not recognized by Israel as their Messiah, but actually, His death. And his resurrection has affected the world forever. And we sing this morning in the joy of what Jesus did for us in our lives. Alec Machia, he says this, Cyrus had the evidence but he either did not or would not face its implications. So this morning, are we up to facing those implications of what Christ did for us? Of the fact that there is a Lord in heaven, sovereign over history and time. So my last point is this. Are you living as if the Lord is sovereign over your life? We've heard that God is sovereign over history. God is sovereign over time. God is sovereign over leaders. He's sovereign over the whole world and everything in it. But do we truly believe that today? God is never helpless. He's never frustrated. He's never at a loss. And in Christ, God's awesome sovereign providence is there for us, it makes us the most secure, the most free w- that we can be. So, I feel this morning that God would want to challenge us. Are we living like the people of Israel and Judah, maybe even failing to recognize the hand of God in our own lives? Or are we looking in expectancy that He is at work in all the circumstances of our lives? So, Here are some points, some challenge points I want you to take away, pray through, think about. Firstly, have you bowed the knee and acknowledged the Lord as sovereign over your life? You might be in this place this morning and not have given your heart to Jesus Christ. You might be interested in God. You might be interested in the things of God. Well, maybe this morning, today is a time when actually you respond to the Holy Spirit speaking into your heart and giving your life to Jesus. Repenting of the things that you have done, unlike Cyrus, just jogging on with life, but actually bowing the knee to God, not compromising, not following many thoughts and many ideas, but following the one way. If you're a Christian here this morning, are you living as if Jesus is on the throne, or are you just pulling him into your plans? Do you trust in him? Or do you lurch from crisis to crisis, shooting up those kind of arrow prayers in those times of need? Are you looking for God's hand at work in your circumstances, even if it seems bleak from your perspective? Are you looking around and going, actually, although it seems like this, God, you're with me. I trust that you're with me. I know that your spirit is in me. I know that you've plans to prosper me, not to harm me. I know that all these things, you, you work for my good. The things might not be good sometimes, but you're working for the good of those who love me, love you. Do you live your life as if God is sovereign, or are there some areas in your life that you don't really believe he's in control of? Because we can, we can acknowledge, oh yeah, I think God's, God's sovereign. Is he really in control of your health? Do you trust that he's in charge of your health? Do you trust that he's numbered all your days? Do you trust him for the future, for your job, for your family? Do you believe that God can still use you even though you feel weak and foolish and maybe not up to the job? God, in his grace, used Cyrus. God used Cyrus for his purposes. Do you know what? God can use you. God can use me. The Lord wants to use us to be salt and light amongst those that we live Acts says he's chosen the exact time and the places where men should live. So God's decided that you're you're called to be where you're living for this time, for this purpose. Do you limit God to what you think constitutes the way God works? God's people didn't recognize Cyrus. Even though Isaiah had prophesied it beforehand, God's people didn't recognize him when he came. Do you limit God? Do you go, well, God, you're only going to work in this way. And actually anything else, that, that can't be God. Who is God currently using in your life to shape you? Now, you might have some great godly Christian brothers and sisters who speak into your life, and I really want to encourage you that part of the joy of being part of God's people is that we can have a role in each other's lives to encourage one another. But actually, from that story of Cyrus, we believe that God can actually use other people who may not even know that the Lord is using them to speak into our lives as well. There might be circumstances and people that maybe are quite oppositional, but actually God is doing something in our hearts through that time as well. And lastly... Do you have expectations of God or expectancy? Steve was talking about this yesterday. Um, We were away with the the elders and wives. And Steve was kind of encouraging us to look to God in expectancy... Rather than thinking about expectations, if we have expectations, it could be that we're praying for something, and if God doesn't deliver on that, you know, it's a linear thing. You know, I'm going to pray here, and God, you're going to come up with the goods there. And, you know, is that how you live your life? You're going, right, I'm going to pray, and then that's going to happen. Then I'm going to do that, and then that's... Or are you living constantly in expectancy? going actually, God's on my case. I'm going to dig into him. I'm going to seek him. Okay, I'm going to seek him first in his righteousness and believe that you know, all these other things will be added in due course in the right season. I'd like the worship band just to make their way up. We're going to respond to God today. I'd really love us to sing, blessed be your name. Because the words of that song says that things like, you give and you take away, yet my heart will choose to say, blessed be your name. In all circumstances, we're just going to finish with this scripture that I, I, I felt was really relevant this morning for us to respond to. It says this Be joyful always. That doesn't mean laughing and jolly always, it means joyful. Be joyful in the Lord always, continually giving thanks in all circumstances. For this is God's will for you in Christ Jesus. I think sometimes we can go, God, what's your will? Am I going there or am I going there? Well, this is God's will. The Bible says God's will for us is this, being joyful always, praying continually, giving thanks in all circumstances. Do not put out the Spirit's fire. Do not treat prophecies with contempt. Test everything. Hold on to the good. Avoid every kind of evil. May God himself, the God of peace, sanctify you through and through. May your whole spirit, soul, and body be kept blameless at the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. The one who calls you is faithful, and he will do it. Let's stand together and respond to the Lord. As we sing this, I really want you to bring things that you feel God's just stirring up in your heart at the moment. Some of those challenges, I'm just going to put this, leave that list up there just whilst I finish off. Maybe God's speaking to you about some of these areas in your life. As we sing this song, let's sing that refrain. My heart will choose to say, blessed be your name. Not like, oh, I feel like it today, so you're blessed. Tomorrow, because I don't feel like it, you're not blessed. Okay, my heart will choose to say, blessed be your name. If you feel that you want to come forward for prayer, there'll be a prayer team here at the end who would love to pray with you. So don't stand there passively. Don't leave it. Don't go home Let's, let's get right with God this morning. Let's line ourselves up with the Word of God.